names. I'm not very good at names. I'm glad I didn't have to read the Old Testament reading. <laughs> but as many of you know, I'm not good at remembering names either. My name's Rosie, and today I'm going to talk a bit about Hannah, a bit about Samuel, an introduction. Names are critical, especially if you're trying to introduce people. Have you ever had to choose a name for a pet, a house, a place, a child? Was it easy? Did you enjoy it? How long did it take? Was the meaning a consideration? Have names evolved for practical reasons to distinguish between people, grandma versus granny? We call one local park Phoebe's Park because it's just by where Phoebe lives. I remember a lady admiring Matthew when he was a baby, asking me straight away not only his name, but what his name meant. We had a memorable conversation about the privilege of naming a child and why we'd chosen a certain name. Her baby's name had a similar meaning to Matthew, gift of God. So, Hannah, back to Hannah. She was desperate for a baby. This amazing woman of passion and prayer is written about at the beginning of 1 Samuel. The Old Testament book is about kingship and covenant. And it starts by recounting a time before Israel had a kingdom, when there were judges like Gideon. But this is long after Gideon, when Eli was a judge. Can you spot I'm just choosing the names I can say? <laughs> the book is named after Samuel, and Hannah is his mum. But as you know from the reading, we're introduced to her at a very painful moment. She's desperate for a son. She's one of Elkanah's two wives. Now, Elkanah was probably a Levite from the priestly clan, and he deeply loved Hannah more than his other wife, Peninnah, who had given him lots of children. Peninnah saw Hannah as a rival. Although Peninnah was living on the children front, Hannah was winning in the love stakes. And they had to share space. They had to share their husband. They had to do things together, like when they all went on the annual trip to the sacred assembly point for worship at Shiloh for the Feast of the Tabernacle. Now at this occasion, as well as sacrifice and worship, there was partying and feasting together. So Peninnah would have spotted Alkanah, giving Hannah a double portion of all the best bits of the feast. She would have known he'd loved her more. And the celebrations, though, would have been particularly painful for Hannah, with no children crowding round her. And nearby, Penina, with her ever-present family. Penina making Hannah cry with her snide comments. It's very hard to join in celebrations if you're breaking inside. Now, this provocation continues year after year after year. And Elkanah doesn't seem to understand Hannah at all. And initially, he says, why are you crying? And then, why are you not eating? And finally, he gets more perceptive and asks why she's so sad. And then he blows it by asking why he isn't enough for her. And finally, it's too much for Hannah. She's feeling isolated, victimized, unheard, misunderstood. And she cries out to God. Different person, different place, but another cry to God was from the German pastor and theologian, Dietrich Benhoffer, who was brave and outspoken to the Nazis, but also forthright with God, admitting in one prayer, 
great is the misery that has come upon me. My cares would overwhelm me. I know not what to do. Honest prayers well up, overflow, and by their nature reflect where we are. It's a response, maybe an unstoppable flow, maybe of joy, but from Hannah here, overwhelming, all-encompassing misery. There's the standard answer, fine, when somebody asks, how are you? But sometimes, depending on who asks, there's a deeper question wrapped inside, how are you? Evoking a more truthful answer. And sometimes, this gentle nudge about our soul state from inside our being is from God. To patch together a response, something resembling an answer, it's probable that we have to feel secure with a safe person or in a familiar place. For Hannah, this was the Lord's house, and she slipped away from the others after the feasting, and Eli, the priest, watched her weeping with her lips silently moving and thought she was drunk. But she was expressing her deepest agonies to the Lord, her bitterness, grief, pain from childlessness, and her cries included a vow. If she had a son, she would give him up, not just for the normal length of priestly service, but for all his life. And she'd never cut his hair, another sign of dedication to the Lord. After her weeping, her crying, she must have felt exhausted, but exhilarated too. She realised she's hungry, food usually helps, and she's able to keep going. Normality kicks in. Early the next morning, they all get up, carry out the final acts of worship, go home. All of them. But she's changed. And in time, Hannah has a son and has the tricky job of choosing a name. Or, and I'm guessing here, maybe not so tricky, for she calls him Samuel, meaning God has heard. And she kept her promise. And when he was about three, she went back to Eli at Shiloh and said the equivalent of, you'll not believe this. It's me, and here's Samuel. God heard. Maybe Eli had the grace to go red when he remembered their last conversation about drunkenness. Maybe he remembered her promise. But here Samuel was. Her promise of giving Samuel to the Lord and fulfilling her vow, she brought him. But it was unfathomable to us. So, part one, done. Samuel, meaning God, has heard. God heard Hannah. And now I want to talk about us hearing God. Samuel, a big name in biblical terms. Later, to be the last judge and the first prophet since Moses. The prophet chosen by God to anoint Saul and then David to kingship. When Israel demanded a king instead of the previous decentralised judge system that they'd had before. Now, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. And Samuel's prophetic ministry is significant because it begins at a time when words from the Lord were rare. So a prophet has to hear God, which is particularly hard if God doesn't say much. So, fast forward ten years or so, and Samuel is growing up. And Eli is even older than he was before. And as an aside, I wonder what Samuel called him. Eli? Mate? Many people answer 
to several names. I'm Rosie to most, Mrs Sheldon to some, Mummy to a few, and Rosemary to my RE teacher at school. But a name can sound very different when said by different people. And maybe this was Samuel's problem. He knew his mum's voice, her loving voice. He saw her every year. She brought him bigger clothes. He knew Eli's voice and those around in the temple, but he wasn't used to hearing God. Most of us can identify with that. He didn't recognise God calling him. One night, when Samuel was probably about 12, he was asleep in the temple near Eli, and Eli was nearly blind with old age, and God called Samuel, except Samuel thought it was Eli, three times. I can imagine Samuel getting a bit fed up, getting up off the floor, going over to Eli, offering to help, and Eli just going, no, and just wanting to be left alone, in peace. And then Eli realises it's God, and helps Samuel to listen. I'm not going to look at the Romans reading today, thanks Meg, except to say that it's Paul encouraging the Romans and us to renew our hearts and our minds so that we can test and check out what God's will is for us, what is our calling. So part two, finished. God doesn't speak much to those we think are important. Here God spoke to Samuel, a child, not Eli. God speaks to those not expecting it, and God keeps on trying. Samuel disturbed Eli three times before Eli tweaked what was happening. Samuel never assumed God was calling him. He needed Eli's help. Sometimes we need a nudge from a friend to realise God's calling, saying something. It might be through a book, a song, a poem, a walk, a friend. And we need to check it out. So take courage. Remember Hannah crying out and later naming Samuel God heard. And remember Samuel hearing, not understanding, but being helped to hear God, the God who keeps on calling. Thank you.